Well, good morning. Everybody doing all right? Welcome to everybody here and everybody out in, uh, let's see, Burleson, uh, Granbury, uh, Fort Worth campus, and also in Brock. Brock is our new uh, Band of Brothers group that's meeting. I don't know when they're meeting. I don't have a clue where they're meeting. I just know they're meeting. So wherever you guys are, we're glad you're here. Um, well, we're going to jump into uh, chapter 12, and we're going to go through the first part of chapter 15 this morning. We're going to dig into uh, the life of Abram. So we're kind of getting into the meat of the book right now. I know we've covered a lot of territory. Last week was a, like drinking from a fire hose, but we're, we're going to really start finding out about who, who are the Israelites, where did they come from. That's really the whole gist of the book is Moses trying to help these people understand who they are, where they came from, who is their God, and what it is they're getting ready to do as they go into the land of promise. And so that's kind of where it's going to start leading us as we get further into the book. So let me pray for us, and we're going to jump into this morning's lesson. Father, thank you for this opportunity to get together and study your word. We pray that you would bring it alive in our hearts and lives, that we would see what you would have us to see, and that, Lord, you would convict us, challenge us, and change us, and that we would uh, walk away from here encouraged by what we hear, and, and more than anything, encouraged by what we learn about you, that you are a great God, a sovereign God, a loving God. You're, you're in complete control. Nothing has escaped your attention, and that, Father, whatever's going on in our lives, whatever is going on in the world around us, we can rest assured that you have it all in control, and you're not worried, you're not upset, and you've got a plan, and you're going to work that plan to perfection, and we can rest in that. Father, bless this time together, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So this week's lesson is Back to Eden, which is, uh, might sound kind of strange to you, but um, I'm of the opinion, and, and I'm, I'm not alone in this, uh, that I think Eden was actually in the land of Israel. And, and part of the reason I believe that, and you'll, you'll see a map in just a second that illustrates it, but I believe when you look at the uh, dimensions of Eden, when God tells Abram how, how big Eden, or not Eden, but Israel is, the land of Israel, the promised land, it's much bigger than anything um, David or Solomon ever populated. It goes all the way from the Euphrates River to the east, all the way to the Nile in the west. And that covers a lot of territory, and it would also include where Eden probably was, because Eden was somewhere in that geographic area. So I think the land of Israel is where Eden was. So in a sense, we're going to see that Abram is going to go back to Eden, the promised land, the, the paradise that God gave to Adam and Eve. So we've seen Adam and Eve leave. Where'd they go? They headed east. We saw part of the population of the earth ended up in a place called Babel, where they decided they're going to build a city and they're going to build a monument to their own fame and God dispersed them and he confused their languages. But Babel will eventually become Babylon, which is to the east. And so where do we find out Abram comes from? That same region. So it's almost like God is reversing things and now Abram's going to come and he's going to head back to the west. He's going to head back to the land of promise. So that's kind of where we're going this morning with the call of Abram. Chapter 11, where we ended last week, kind of the midway point, connects what theologians call primordial history, chapters 1 through 11, and then the rest of the book, which is patriarchal history, the history of the patriarchs of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And so we're moving into that part of the story, and that's the story that's of, of most interest to the Israelites, right? They want to know where did we come from? Who's our patriarchs? Who's our forefathers? And, and they know this already. They, it would have been passed down through oral traditions. They, they knew about Abram. They knew about Isaac and Jacob. But now they're getting far more detail than they probably ever heard about their history. So we're going to look at how we went from Adam and how we get to Abram. And the way we do that, I put this chart in your notes, but we began with Adam, right? The creation of Adam, Adam, um, man. And chapter 5 gives us the kind of the genealogy, the, the family tree of Adam all the way down to Noah. And we talked about the fact that in that family tree, there's one guy that stands out, and his name is Enoch. Enoch, Enoch is the guy 
who lived but never died. He was taken by God, but he walked with God. That's the reason he was taken. He had a relationship with God. And he becomes the great-grandfather of Noah. And Noah, we're told, walked with God. He was righteous. He was blameless in his generation. So this is Genesis 5. Then if you go to Genesis 10, we have another genealogy that takes us from Noah all the way down to Abram. These genealogies, and there's a bunch of them in the book of Genesis, all begin the same way. They say, this is the generation of Adam. This is the generation of Noah. And that that word generation is really teledop in in the Hebrew, and it can be translated, and and this is what came next. It's it's basically saying, this guy was born, and this, this is what came next. Here's the generations. This guy was born, here's the generations. So in chapter 5 and chapter 10, that's how we get to from Adam down to Abram. That's the connection. God is showing us how he arrived at this one guy. And what's important is Abram comes through the line of Enoch, the man who walked with God, the man who was, who lived and then was no more. He was taken by God. Why? Because he had a relationship with God. We know that Noah had a relationship with God. And through that family tree, that's how we get to this guy named Abram. Now, where does Abram come from? And, and this is fascinating to me, that, that this is the way God works. God's ways are not our ways, guys. He, he does things in a way that we, we sometimes look at and go, what were you thinking? Now, that's a dangerous thing to ever ask of God, but, but we, we sometimes wonder, why did you do it this way? And when we study the life of Abram, we have to ask that question, why, God? Look at what it says. It says, Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarah, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Now, what's going on here is in chapter 11, the latter part, it's telling us where did Abram come from? Well, his father is a guy named Terah. They live in a place called Ur. And Terah, for some reason that's not told to us here, decides he's going to relocate his family to Canaan. Now, why he did that, we don't know. Was it the inspiration of God? Well, I I have to believe that God's involved in this in some way. The text doesn't tell us. He didn't get a vision. He, He wasn't told. But he makes this decision that he's going to go from Ur, which is all the way to the east, and here it is on the map, Ur is in Mesopotamia. It's not far from Babylon, which is where Babel came from. So this guy is living with his family in a pagan area, about as far east as you can get, about as far away from Eden as they could get. And then they're going to make this plan to go from Ur all the way to Canaan. Now, why? We don't know. What possessed him to transfer his family that far? Um, I was talking to Kevin this morning, and they moved over the weekend, and we were laughing about how we hate to move. You know, moving is one of the last things I ever want to do. I can't imagine moving this far. This is an 800-mile trek that he's going to relocate his family. But the problem is they go to Haran because they're trying to skirt the desert, and they end up staying in Haran. They never make it to Canaan. So Terah, the father of Abram, makes this decision, but they end up settling in a place called Haran. Why? Why are they settling there? Why not finish the job? Well, there's a lot of things going on here, but I think part of this is that we have to see that God is sovereignly ordaining everything in the story. One of the things we have to keep in mind, and I've, I've beat this drum to death, is that Moses is writing this for the Israelites who are preparing to go into the land of Canaan. They're preparing to try to conquer all the Canaanites who live in the land, their own descendants who are of that ungodly line of of Ham, and and they are reluctant, right? We don't know if we're going to be able to do this. We think there's giants in the land. We think the enemies are too great, and they're really second-guessing whether God is powerful enough to pull this off. So what is Moses telling them? Trust God. You can trust God. I know it looks daunting, I know it looks impossible, but God can make this happen. So Terah decides 
to move. And, and I have to believe that God is sovereignly working somehow in his life, even though he's a pagan, to make this happen. He just happens to choose the land of Canaan to relocate his family, including his son, Abram. So God's at work. And what Moses wants the Israelites to, to see and what God wants you and I to see is that God is always at work. You know, sometimes I wake up in the morning and I look at the news or I, I Riding in, driving in my car and I listen to a podcast about current events and I start to wonder, is he really? Is God really in control of this mess? And I have to remember, yes, he is. He's always in control. He's never out of control. So you see, Abram's birth is a, is a sign of that, that this guy came from Enoch, the man who walked with God. He came from Noah, a man who was righteous and blameless in his generation who walked with God. So his birth is God's will. Terah's decision to move his family is God's will. And ultimately, we're going to see his choice of Haran is God's will. All of this is the sovereign plan of God at work. And again, the Israelites need to hear that. We need to hear that because we are surrounded by things that confuse us, frustrate us, um, cause fear and anxiety in us. And God is saying, Trust me, I, I know what I'm doing, I'm in charge. So even the choice of Haran is, is important. Now, why would God choose this guy, Abram? We know a lot about Abram. If you've been around the church very long, you've heard sermons on Abram. If you grew up in, going to Sunday school, you heard stories about Abram. Um, but what do we really know about Abram? Abram, interestingly enough, is from this place called Ur, and he's a pagan. Now, I didn't know this most of my adult life. You know, growing up in a, in a church, uh, going to Sunday school, even when I got into college, I didn't understand that Abram was actually a pagan and he wasn't a Jew. Well, wait a minute. He's the father of the Jewish people. Well, the Jewish people did not yet exist uh, because Abram did not yet exist. Abram is from Ur of the Chaldees. We saw it on the map. He's a pagan. He's not a Yahweh worshiper. And not only that, you may not realize that he's got an, a family that's somewhat inbred. There's, there's some interesting things going on. His brother, Nahor, marries his niece. Abram marries his half-sister, Sarah. Now, that seems to have been common. One of the questions I get asked all the time is, where did uh, Cain and Abel get their wives from? You know, well, they probably were marrying their sisters um, because there were no other women on the earth at that time. So somehow that was proper and appropriate, but there comes a time later when God says, no more. Um, and I think part of that is the degradation of the DNA of mankind through just intermarriage and through the degenerative effects of sin on the world. But He's marrying his half-sister. That's what happens. And, and that's the guy. And they're all idol worshipers. Now, how do we know that? How do we know he's not worshiping Yahweh? Well, one of the places we go is Joshua. The book of Joshua says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abram and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River, where in Ur, and they worshiped other gods. That they is all-inclusive. It includes Terah, Abram, and Nahor. The whole family, everybody's worshiping other gods, okay? That's who this guy is. R. Kent Hughes says, most important is that we understand that at this time, Terah's tiny, inbred family were moon worshipers. Now, that's pretty significant when you think that we studied chapters 1 and 2, and God made all things, including what? The sun and the moon. Now we have these people worshiping the moon. And they live in the leading center of lunar religion. Abram's family, including Abram himself, were polytheistic idolaters. He doesn't just worship one God. He worship, worships lots of God. Now, what's significant about that is if you worship lots of gods, it means you're okay with there being lots of gods. And one more God doesn't really make a difference, right? That's why the um, enemies of Israel were not afraid to adopt Yahweh as their God. They just didn't want to give up their other gods. 
the idea of having multiple gods was kind of hedging your bets. You know, what's, what's wrong with one more God? Maybe he'll help us in this situation. So the idea that he might accept Yahweh was kind of wired into his system that there are a lot of gods. But God reveals himself. Yahweh, the God of Israel, is going to reveal himself to this guy. And Abram's going to basically switch teams. He, he, he doesn't continue to worship the moon god and the sun god and all the other gods of that region of the world, the gods of his father and his grandfather. He, he basically changes. It's interesting that we got from Enoch, a man who walked with God, and then God took him, to Terah, who no longer walks with God, right? And he's worshiping other gods, and he's passed that on to his son, Abram. But Abram has this spiritual transformation that takes place while he's still in Ur. God speaks to him. God calls him to himself. And there's a huge change that begins to take place. If you recall in the book of Acts, Stephen, right before he gets stoned, is addressing the Jewish leadership. And here's what he says. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. Our glorious God appeared to our ancestor Abraham in Mesopotamia, which is far to the east, before he settled in Haran. Before Terah took his family up north, God visited Abram. God told him, leave your native land and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. So Abraham left the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran until his father died. That's what we're going to see in Genesis. Then God brought him here to the land where you now live. Stephen is telling these men that Abram came from Ur, but he was called out of there by God, took a detour to Haran, but eventually made it to where? Canaan. But he was at one time a worshiper of false gods. This guy, Abram, received a call from God all the way back in Ur. His father makes the decision to move the family to Haran. Of course, he goes along with him. But he knows all along that this is not where he's supposed to stay. I'm supposed to land in Canaan. I'm supposed to go to the land that God has promised to me. This story to me is incredible because it, we read it and we almost go, okay, he got called, God gave him a land, and he went. But think about the idea of being called by a God you've never met before, given a promise that entails an 800-mile journey, taking your whole family and relocating to, again, a land you've never seen or been to, and living among people whose languages you don't speak. That's a, that's a pretty incredible leap of faith. And it's one of the reasons he's called a man of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. So chapter 12 tells us that the Lord calls him. He says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. When did he call him? All the way back in Ur. Not in Haran, but in Ur. He's telling him, I want you to go. And then he makes some promises to him. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. And then he's gonna, I'm going to make your offspring a blessing to the nations, to the world. And again, think about trying to take that in. What does that even mean? And we're going to see that there's some inherent problems in that scenario as we move along. But he says, go. God says, go. Leave your country and your kindred and your father's house. Three different things. He's basically saying, leave it all behind. Now, one of the things I think is happening through the sovereign will of God is he's somehow gotten Terah to make the decision, hey, guys, let's move to Canaan. Well, God didn't want Terah to move to Canaan. He wants Abram to move to Canaan. So they end up going through Haran, and when they get there, Terah changes his mind. Why? Because God wanted Abram to leave his family behind. He wanted him to leave that influence of Terah and his idol worship behind. And so that's the sovereign plan of God. Terah makes this decision. They move. But he stays there, and he eventually dies, and that frees Abram up to do what? Make the final jog down from the north to the south. See, God's at work in all of this, but he says, I want you to go. And here's what's amazing. He says, it's going to cost you, right? You're going to have to give up a lot in order to follow my will, and that's the way God works. 
It, it always costs us something, right, to follow God. It, it, it's not free. Salvation is free, but to step out in faith always costs us something. And that's exactly what happens here. Your country, your kindred, your land, your friends, your family members, your security, everything you know, even your gods, you're going to leave them all behind. See, what's interesting is when they moved to Haran, those same gods were worshipped up there. See, paganism has spread all throughout the land. And so staying in Haran wasn't a choice. That's not the land God promised. You can move up there, but you got to get out of there. You got to leave all of this behind. You got to go. You got to leave. You got to listen. You got to obey. And again, the subtle message, or probably not so subtle message for the Israelites standing on the bank of the Jordan River waiting to go into the land is that you're going to have to leave some stuff behind. You got to leave behind Egypt. You got to leave behind the gods you worshiped in Egypt. You've got to step out in faith and trust me. And that's exactly the same message for us because God had promised him a land. But what's interesting is how cryptic, cryptic God is in his call of Abram. He doesn't tell them a whole lot. He just basically says, go. I want you to go to a land that I will show you. I'm going to lead you to a land, but he doesn't tell them a whole lot about it. Now, I wouldn't like that, right? I'm, I'm kind of a control freak, and I want to, okay, wait, give me the details. How, when, what's it going to cost? How long is it going to take? Um, what, what's, what all's involved here? Well, God doesn't tell them any of that. There are few details given to this guy. And yet, when God says go, he goes. He gives him a lot of incentive, though. Um, I'll give God credit for that. God tends to give us plenty of incentive. We just sometimes ignore it. Well, what does he tell him? He says, I will make of you a great nation. In other words, I'm going to, from you and your wife, Sarah, I'm going to make a huge nation, a great nation. I'm going to bless you. What, what individual doesn't want to be blessed by God? Uh, that's the reason we worship all gods is we want to be blessed by that God. We want something from them. He says, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you famous. This guy is as obscure as you can be. At this point in time, nobody knows Abram from a hole in the wall. And God says, I'm going to make your name great, Abram, greater than anyone who's ever lived. And then I'm going to bless those who bless you, and I'm going to curse those who dishonor you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to watch over you. And then he says, I'm going to bless the nations of the earth through you. Now, that's, that's an incredible set of promises. But that's pretty strong incentive to do what God says, that I want to be blessed. I, I, hey, that'd be great to have a nation come from me and, and to be a blessing to the nations. And so he hears it, and he obeys it, and he goes. It says, so Abram went as the Lord told him. He did what God called him to do. That's one of the reasons he's in the chapter 11, great hall of faith of Hebrews, because he obeyed. He did what God called him to do. This guy is not perfect, as we will clearly see. He's not a saint, as he will clearly prove, but he believed. He, he stepped out in faith, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and he took his wife, Sarah, and Lot, his brother, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go where? To the land of Canaan. He's going to make the final part of the journey from Haran in the north down to Canaan in the south. Knows nobody there. He has no family there. He, he, he can't hey, pull up to his neighbor's house and say, hey, I'm, I'm here. Can we move in with you for a while? He knows nobody in this land. He's an alien and a stranger. But he goes. And here's what jumped out at me in studying this, this passage, and I've never seen this before, is the similarities between Abram and Israel when it comes to the Exodus. Because Abram, who's going to father the Israelites, is going to emulate for them or demonstrate for them their own history. Look at this. He's delivered from Ur. He's really set free from Ur just like the Israelites are going to be set free from Egypt where they're living as slaves centuries later. He's sent to Canaan just like the Israelites. He's released from idolatry. When God calls him, he sets him free from worshiping the moon god, the sun god, and all the other gods. 
so are the Israelites. When they're living in captivity in Egypt, they're worshiping the gods of Egypt. And God's going to set them free from that slavery, but also from literal slavery to the Egyptians. He's going to leave behind Nana, the moon god, which was the primary god they worshiped in Ur. What about the Israelites? They're going to leave behind Ra, the sun god, which is the main god of the Egyptians. He's called by Yahweh, so are the Israelites. He's promised offspring, a land of their own, a blessing from God, and to be a blessing. What were the Israelites promised? Freedom, a land of their own, a blessing from God, and that he would be their God. There's these incredible similarities between Abram and the people who will eventually come from him. He's, he's living out what will become their history. They can look at him and go, wow, if he could do this, we can do this. If he can trust God, we can trust God. That's the whole reason this story is being put together for them, that they might trust God as Abram, their patriarch, trusted God. So what happens? Well, the Lord appears to Abram, and he tells him something pretty insignificant. He says, your offspring, to, the, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord. You're going to see that phrase over and over again in these passages. We're not going to camp on it, but he's always building altars to God. And then he calls upon the name of the Lord. That basically is a phrase that means he worshiped God. He builds an altar and then he worships God. It's interesting that unlike the people who went to Babel, Nimrod and his cohorts that tried to build Babel as a monument to themselves, you'll never see Abram build a house, a city, a monument, anything other than altars. That's all he ever builds. He's always building altars. And then he worships God, which gives us an insight into his heart and his relationship with God. So he builds this altar. And, and what happens? Well, God says to your offspring, I'm going to give this land. He's in the land. He's down in Canaan now. He, he doesn't know anybody there. He's never been here before. He knows nothing about this land other than God says, I'm going to give this land to your offspring, this, this incredible place called Canaan. Yes, occupied by your enemies. And that issue of land and offspring are going to recur over and over again in these chapters. But Abram's going to really understand pretty quickly that this land's going to be really hard to come by. It's like you moving to a different country and God saying, this country is now yours. You know, I'm going to move you to Sweden and Sweden belongs to you now. Well, there's kind of people living here, God. It's, it's, it's already occupied. They have a government. They have an army. Not much of one, but they have an army. And how am I supposed to take this over? That's all going through this guy's mind, right? I'm going to give you this land. But he says, I'm going to give it to your offspring. God's beginning to prepare him that you're never going to own anything in this land except the plot on which you bury your wife eventually. That's all you're ever going to own because it's for your offspring. Abram is being told by God slowly but surely that you're nothing but a conduit. My wife refers to herself as a PVC pipe. She says, I just connect people. She goes, I'm not that important. I just connect one person with another. And that's a great way of viewing yourself, right? You're, you're, you're just a plain old PVC pipe. That's what he is. He doesn't understand it yet, but he's a connector. He's going to connect God and his offspring and the promises of God with his offspring. From him, Abram are going to come offspring, seed, and lots of them. Through him is going to come the land. They don't get the land except through who? Abram, because the promise is made to Abram. So he's the conduit. And then because of him, they will be blessed. Think about that. Their blessing by God is completely tied to the faithfulness of Abram. Now, I don't want to overstep my bounds, but if I want my children and my grandchildren to be blessed by God, might I not be, might, might you not be a conduit of blessing if I'm obedient, if I live in faithfulness to God? It's not a guarantee, right? It should be motivation that I want to live a life of faithfulness like Enoch did. And through Enoch came Noah, and through Noah came Abram. See, we want to be faithful 
so that we might be a blessing and that our offspring might be blessed of God. Hebrews 11 says this, again, the great hall of faith. It was by faith that Abraham obeyed God when he called him to leave home and go to another land that God would give him as his inheritance. He went without knowing where he was going. And even when he reached the land, God promised him, he lived there by faith for he was like a foreigner living in tents. He never owned any land. He never lived in a house. He never lived in a city. He lived in tents. He was a nomad. He was a wanderer. He was a sojourner. He was a stranger. And yet God said, this is your land. For who? For his offspring. And so he went knowing that I'll never own this, but I'm going to be faithful because through me, my offspring will be blessed with land. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. What happens? Almost immediately, he gets into the land, and it says, now there was a famine in the land. Now, we read that, and we go, oh, that sucks. But think about this. I called you out of Ur. I've made you travel 800 miles to this place that I said, I'm going to bless you and give to you. And he gets there, and what happens? A famine. If I'm Abram, I'm going, okay, what's wrong with this picture? What kind of God did I decide to follow when he leads me to a land, and when I get there, there's a famine? It's like it's all gone south. This doesn't make sense. This, this can't be God's will, right? How many times have you said that in your life? This cannot be God's will. I don't like this. I didn't sign up for this. Well, that's exactly, I think, what's going through his mind. So what does he do? He goes to Egypt. He makes a decision. But why? Because the famine is severe. It's really, really bad. It's all-encompassing. It's throughout all the land of Canaan. There's nowhere else to go, so he goes to Egypt. And his faith gets put on trial. Isn't it amazing how quickly our faith gets put on trial by God when we step out in faith and then we run into a roadblock or we find something that comes up that goes, man, I don't know. I don't know if I can trust God with this. I don't know if my God's big enough for this. How do you learn to grow in your faith? Through trials, through tests. And that's exactly what happens to him. There's a famine in the land of fruitfulness. Think about that. This land is described as the garden of God. It's often referred to as paradise. It's like Eden. It's a land flowing with milk and honey, as we read later in the Pentateuch. It's a great place. It's an abundant place. It's a fruitful place. But now it's got a famine. What a disconnect. What, this shouldn't be. But it's all part of God's plan. It's God working behind the scenes to test the faith of Abram. See, Abram is still learning about this new God he's following, right? He doesn't understand quite who Yahweh is yet. He has a lot of familiarity with Nana, the moon god, and the other gods of, of Ur, but he's not quite up to speed with this God yet. And so God's going to test his faith. And what does he do? Abram sees the need and he decides to solve the problem. It's what we always do, right? We, we become self-sufficient and his fear replaces his faith. He comes up against a famine, a, a, a roadblock, a, a situation that seems insurmountable and he becomes fearful of the future. So he decides, I got to do something. And he decides to come up with a plan. That's what we do. We, we love to come up with plans. And when we come up with a plan, it's not that planning is wrong, but it's that we fail to realize that ultimately I need to know what God's plan is and make sure that I'm not trying to come up with a plan apart from God. And so what, what he does is he decides to fix the problem. And he talks to his wife and he says, hey, when we get down to Egypt, I need you to do something for me. And you know the story, right? He does it a couple of times. He gets his wife to lie for him. He says, when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Let's kill him. Then we can have her. So please tell them you're my sister. Now, this is a half-truth. We saw earlier, he's married his half-sister. So he's kind of telling the truth. Tell them you're my sister. What's going on here is he knows enough about culture that he knows that in most of these countries, they respect marriage and, and they're not going to, or, or they, yeah, they respect marriage, so to speak. But he's afraid their lust is going to drive them to kill him so they can have his wife. What's fascinating is Sarah is 65 years old at this point. Now, my wife is 64 and I think she's a gorgeous woman 
But he is obsessed with the fact that these people are going to want his wife so much that they'll kill him to get rid of him because they don't believe, and this is fascinating to me, they don't believe in adultery. But they'll kill her, kill him so they can have her. Put those two together. That makes no sense to me. And so what he says is, tell them you're my sister. And, and Sarah agrees. She agrees with this plan. And it's not a good plan. Any way you look at it, this is not a good plan. And it doesn't go well at all. But he's acting as God, right? He's doing exactly what Eve did in the garden, what Cain did outside the garden when he kills his brother. He's determining what's right and wrong. Remember what did the serpent say? Eat of this fruit and you will be as God, knowing good from evil. You'll have the right to decide what's right for you, what's wrong for you. That's exactly what he's doing. And he decides what's best for himself. And what's fascinating, he says, Sarah, I want you to lie for me so that it'll go well for me. He never stops and goes, this could go really bad for you, right? If you tell this lie, they will not kill me, but they'll probably take you, which is exactly what happens, right? He fears that they're going to want his beautiful wife, and that's exactly what happens when he tells her to lie. He risks his wife's life and reputation. There is nothing faithful in this. There's nothing godly, righteous, or blameless in this. Why? Because he's acting in his own strength, and so God intervenes. And you're going to see that phrase over and over again. God steps in. God does what only God can do. And God convicts Pharaoh. He basically threatens Pharaoh with the plague. And Pharaoh says, what in the world have you done to me? Why have you lied to me? Why have you done this to me? Get out of my town. Get out of my country. Take all of these riches with you. Just take your wife and get out of here. And so God rescues his wife. And God, in a sense, rescues Abram from where? Egypt. And he sends him back to Canaan. So he goes up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev, down in the lower portions of the land of Israel. And it says he was very rich. He comes out of there blessed by God. In spite of his lies, in spite of his unfaithfulness, in spite of his autonomy and self-determination, God blesses him. Why? Because God said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you and I'm going to build from you a great nation. So he leaves and he takes Lot with him. And it says they've got flocks and herds. They're rich. They've got more than they can deal with. And it's going to set up a problem. Their possessions were so great, they couldn't live in the land together. Again, I've never looked at it this way before, but he's back in the land of promise and it's not enough to feed both their sets of flocks and herds. And again, think about that. This is the land of bounty. This is the land of plenty, and yet there's not enough. Suddenly there's a lack. Once again, he, he's thinking, I got to do something. There's not enough grazing land for my herds and Lot's herds because we've been so blessed by God, I better come up with a plan. And what happens is there becomes stress and strife between Lot's herdsmen and Abram's herd, herdsmen. Now remember, Lot's his nephew. He's brought him with him all the way from Ur. And there's tension going on between them. And then it adds, and at that time, the Canaanites and Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Just a little bit of an aside that Moses provides, I think, for the Israelites who are reading the story to let them know that He's facing some insurmountable odds. Not only does he have a problem with Lot and his herdsmen, and they can't all pasture their flocks on the land, but there's Canaanites and Perizzites, which means there's not boundless land that they can use because it's owned by other people. And and it, it just drives home for me that, yes, he's called to this land, but it's not paradise yet. It's got enemies it's got limits. There's not enough land for all their livestock. And so what does he do? He does what he always does. He sees a problem in the land of promise and he comes up with a plan. He's got problems with Ken and he's got problems with Canaanites. Canaanites occupy some of the best land and there's not enough grazing land for he and Lot's 
sheep and herds. And so he comes up with, once again, a plan, and he decides to play God. Now, the commentators are kind of split on how this thing works out, but I, I, don't, I don't see this as positive. Some want to say that Abram is magnanimous, and he's generous, and he's, he's kind, and he gives his nephew a choice of the best of land. He's trying to solve a problem, but I see this as a mistake on his part. Because you've got to understand that Lot, while a relative, is not his son. He's not his offspring. He's not part of the inheritance. He's not the one who should be having land in the land of Canaan. As a matter of fact, he probably never should have been there to begin with. He, he was told to leave your household, leave your family, but he's brought Lot with him. Well, he decides to solve this problem. Let there be no strife between you and me and between our herdsmen. The whole land is before you. Look at it. You pick what you want. Look to your left, look to your right, and you choose the land you want. And that's exactly what this guy does. Lot looks it over and he decides, if you're going to give me the choice, I'll do it. And I'm going to choose the best. But it's not his land to give. Remember, the land is the inheritance of his offspring. It didn't belong to Lot, I mean to Abram. He, he wasn't free to just give it away to whoever he wanted, even his nephew. This is not how God wanted it to be done. And what does Lot do? He chooses the best. And Abram had given away part of the inheritance. Never should have done it. And yet, God's going to intervene again. God's going to protect Abram from himself. And I am so glad that God protects me from me. That God steps in and sometimes protects me, oftentimes protects me from some of the dumb decisions I can tend to make. Because he's faithful. And because he's serious about this thing called the inheritance. Now, I didn't put this in your notes, but just take a look at this map. It's pretty fascinating that when we think of the land of Israel, we think of the current land of Israel. But when you read the dimensions as provided by God to Abram, it stretches from the Nile over on the east, uh, the, the, the west, all the way to the Euphrates River. This is the land that God has promised him. And it includes the land that Lot is going to choose, the land which is south of the Dead Sea. See, he never should have given it away. He never should have given Lot this land. And so what does God do? He steps in and he says, I know what you've done. I know what you gave him. But he reaffirms, he says, all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring. He says, walk through the land, travel through the land, and any land you see is yours, including what? all the land that Lot just chose for himself. It didn't belong to Abram to give away. It belonged to the offspring of Abram. He says, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, so shall your offspring be. You're going to have so many offspring. They're going to need all of this land. Don't be giving it away. Don't give it to your nephew. It's yours, all the land, every stinking bit of it is for your offspring. And there's going to be more of them than you can count. Now, one of the things that's going on in the story that we sometimes fail to understand is that he's got a wife, Sarah, and she's barren. She can't have kids. She's 65 years old and barren. That's not a good combination. And yet, what's the whole promise from God? I'm going to make of you a great nation. And you're going to have offspring more numerous than the sand on the seashore and the stars in the skies, he'll tell them later. So what does Abram do? He's given away this land. He can't renege. He can't get it back. So he settles in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. And that's a foreshadowing of something to come. And he goes on and says, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So whether or not he knew it or not, Lot has chosen the best land which also contains some of the most wicked cities. And that's going to have an impact on his life, as we'll see later next week. So the land of Canaan, it's a big place. It's, it's a great place. Yes, there's been a famine. Yes, there's conflict. Yes, there's Canaanites. But this is the land of blessing. And very quickly, we're going to find out there's battle in the land of blessing. There's 
war going on in the land of blessing. And that's what chapter 14 is all, all about because there's a battle that takes place between four kings from the east, from Mesopotamia, and five kings from where? Canaan. And it's all about control of the land. We, we talked about this when we did the uh, study on the kingdom of God, that that land was God's land. That land belonged to God. He was king over the land of Canaan. And yet there were people living there who deemed themselves to be kings of that land. There's five of them down south who have joined together and they've rebelled against one of the kings from the east and a war takes place. And as a result of that war, the four kings defeat the five kings and one of those kings is the king of Sodom. And they invade his town and they capture everybody in it and they take all the plunder and one of the ones they take is Lot, who's now moved into where? Sodom, one of the most wicked cities on the planet at that time. So Lot has chosen the best land, and he's chosen the worst place to live in the best land. And a war breaks out. Lot becomes collateral damage, and Abram is forced to what? Step in. See, if he had never given him this land, he never would have probably settled where he settled. And his decision, Abram's decision, is now coming back to haunt him. So when he hears about it, what does he do? He goes to war. He, he goes to battle. He takes his trained men, born in his house, 318 with him, and he takes some allied nations with him, and they go and they fight, and they defeat them. He defeats these four kings from the east. Where are they from? Mesopotamia, his former stomping grounds. There, there, there's a picture here, I think, for the Israelites that, guess what? When you get to the land, yes, you're going to have to fight battles. You're going to have to go up against enemies, and you will win because I will be with you, and God was with him. It's a preview. It's a foreshadowing of what's to come, that God is going to be with them. God gives Abram victory over his enemies, and he will do the same thing for the Israelites. The nations, no matter who they are, how big they are, how, how powerful they are, are no match for a man of God. And what happens is he receives a blessing. And this is, this is a fascinating part of the story. This king shows up, and he blesses Abram. And he's not one of the nine kings that were in battle. He's a guy named Melchizedek. And he says this to Abram, Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has defeated your enemies for you. This king Melchizedek shows up unannounced. He's nowhere else mentioned in the Old Testament, but he appears here and he tells Abram that your victory was brought to you by God. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High, and he blessed him. And he tells them that God gave you this incredible victory. Well, who is Melchizedek? Who is this, this guy? Well, we know most about Melchizedek from the New Testament rather than the Old. And in Hebrews chapter 7, here's what it says. Melchizedek was a king of the city of Salem and also a priest of God Most High. When Abraham was returning home after winning a great battle against the kings... Melchizedek met him and blessed him. That's what we just read. But who is he? Well, he's the king of Salem. Salem is the word for peace, Salam. And it's, it will become the city of what? Jerusalem. It, he, he's the king of what is currently known as Salem in Abram's day, which will eventually become Jerusalem in David's day. It says in Hebrews 2 that Abraham took a tenth of all that he captured in battle, gave it to Melchizedek. The name Melchizedek means king of justice, and king of Salem means king of peace. That ought to jump out at us, right? It's a, it's a foreshadowing of a king to come, Jesus Christ himself. There is no record of his father or mother. In other words, we're not told where he came from. He just appears on the scene, and then he disappears. No beginning or end to his life. He remains a priest forever, resembling the Son of God. And Jesus Christ comes from this lineage of Melchizedek. He becomes the modern day, so to speak, Melchizedek. So out of all of this, all the heartbreak and all the headaches, everything that he's had to deal with, chapter 15 brings yet another word from God. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, fear not, I'm your shield, your reward shall be very great. He's reaffirming his covenant, his promise, but Abram's like, wait a minute, God, you don't understand. I, I don't have a kid. 
I don't have an heir. I continue childless. And all I've got is Eleazar of Damascus. What he's inferring is, I've got a plan for this problem too. Let me just use Eleazar as my heir. And God's going to say, no, I know you're childless. I know the condition of your wife. I'm fully in control. I know what's going on. But we already see that disillusionment has set in, right? In where? The land of hope, the land of promise. He becomes disheartened. He's doubtful. He's despairing. And God's plan doesn't seem to be working, so he's going to come up with another plan. But God intervenes yet again. What does he do? He takes him out. He shows him the stars, and he says, once again, so shall your children be, your offspring. And then he says, you can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land where they will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. Now, that to me is not good news. If I'm Abram, I'm going, wait a minute. When did this come about? What are you talking about? He says, but I will punish the nation that enslaves them, and in the end, they will come away with great wealth. As for you, you will die in peace and be buried at a ripe old age. Who is this message really for? Yes, it's for Abram, but I don't think he fully understands it. Who's it really for? The people of Israel standing on the edge of the Jordan River, waiting to go into the land of promise and to fight the Canaanites. And where did they come from? Egypt, where their ancestors had lived for 400 years. They are the fulfillment of this promise to Abram. I don't think he fully understood it, but they certainly did. And they realized that, again, you can be sure, after four generations, your descendants will return here to this land, for the sins of the Amorites do not warrant their destruction. It's a promise. It's a covenant that God makes. Countless offspring, heirs, and a whole lot more is what are going to happen. And all he had to do was trust God's plan. A lot in this passage, right? This is, this is, again, deep stuff. This is a lot of territory. But what I want you to see are what are the lessons we can take away. He encountered trials, conflict, disillusionment in the land of promise. How should this have encouraged the Israelites as they prepared to enter the land? They're going to face the same thing, right? They're a little bit disillusioned already. They're fearful. They're doubtful. But what is God telling them through the life of Abram? Abram always seemed to have a plan ready to implement at a moment's notice. How do we do the same thing? And I know you do it. I know you do it. I do it. We're just prone to want to come up with plans to solve the problems instead of turning to the Lord. Then go back and read Hebrews 11, 8 through 10. How do you think the man we study today ever became a role model for faithful living? What is it about him that deems him faithful in God's eyes after what we just went through today? And how does that affect the way we live our lives? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Abram and the story of his life. And Lord, thank you that he's a flawed man. He's, he, he has warts and all kinds of issues going on, but yet he's deemed faithful and righteous because he believed and he trusted and he stepped out. Sometimes he stepped onto the wrong path, but he always came back to you trusting you. May we learn the same lessons and emulate his life. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen.